Panic attacks. While they're incredibly common, they're often mislabeled and misunderstood. Teenagers, even adults, will casually throw the label around. What's the difference between those really powerful moments of anxiety and a panic attack? How do you get the help you need for you or your family who might be having them? We'll answer that question in this week's episode of Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, the show for real talk about worry and other big feelings in parenting. Hi, I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author. I've been a therapist for 30 years. You're here because your family has some anxiety issues or you want to prevent them. I'm your co-host and Lynn's sister-in-law, Robin, and I'm here to ask your questions. Parenting can be a fluster clucks, and I'll help you find your way. So Lynn, let's talk about panic attacks today. Okay. Woohoo. <laughs> it's an exciting topic. It is. Uh, so we have a listener question on panic attacks. I'm excited to talk about this. Okay. I'm a high school adjustment counselor and hear from students that they have panic attacks quite often. What are the symptoms of a panic attack? What is the range in severity? And is it okay to allow them to utilize that language when at times the description does not sound as though they are having a true panic attack? I bet you got a lot to say about that. Mm -hmm. I always validate their experience, but recognize they identify themselves as anxious and that's their fate. Nothing can be done and panic attacks are a part of that identity. Even when identifying strengths and interests, they will self-identify as anxious. Does this make sense? Yes, it makes sense. So this is a great question because it really helps us talk about, for one, the way that kids are using the language of mental health and mental illness and how they're ascribing that to themselves. And so that in, in and of itself is an interesting topic. But let's just talk specifically about panic. So that is a word, right? We all like, you know, oh my gosh, don't panic. Like we were just saying, you know, don't panic or like, oh my God, I was totally panicked. And that's fine. I think what this school counselor is talking about is that kids at this point are using this language to describe a feeling, to describe some sensations, to describe some physical symptoms. And it is helpful to, to understand the difference between when we're talking about anxiety and we're talking about a panic attack. Panic attacks can show up in all sorts of ways. And if you have panic disorder, that means that your life really begins to revolve around not having panic. So that's where it becomes that secular thing of avoidance, right? So if you feel panicky, if you feel these symptoms, then your goal is to not feel those symptoms again. And when I talk about content versus process, right, this is really sort of such a good example of the way the process grabs hold because what you panic about actually becomes not as important to you as the fact that you might panic again. You're worrying about panicking. You're panicking about the likelihood that you might panic because it's such an, a humiliating, embarrassing, overwhelming experience. I have a feeling this conversation is going to be a lot about labels of things too. But what you just said to me, why is that different than you're feeling anxious? So you want to avoid feeling anxious again. How do they all differ if they do? It's really about severity. Okay. When we're talking about panic symptoms, let me just read for you the symptoms. And these are, these are the symptoms that we use to describe panic. Palpitations, pounding heart, accelerating heart rate. Okay. So that happens when you're anxious. Sweating. Sure. Trembling or shaking. 
on a regular basis. When I get really nervous, I get cold and I feel shaky. Okay, so now listen to this. Sensations of shortness of breath or smothering. So right there, we we begin to hear, oh, that's a little bit smothering, right? That's pretty intense. A feeling of choking, right? Again, pretty intense. Chest pain or discomfort. Okay, well, a lot of people when they're anxious feel feel chest tightness, feel chest pain. Nausea, right? Tummy troubles. So nausea or abdominal distress, like tummy troubles. Of course, that's we know that that is absolutely a part of, of feeling anxious. Feeling dizzy, unsteady, lightheaded, or faint. Okay, so that certainly happens when you're anxious. But again, that's, you know, feeling faint, feeling dizzy. That's a little bit more severity. Here are the things that really are important when we're talking about panic. Feelings of unreality, which is called derealization or depersonalization. That feels like you're having an out-of-body experience. You're not connected to your body. You have this weird sense of disconnection. And then here are some really key points of it. A fear of losing control or going crazy. So there's that panic about the panic. Oh my God, I'm losing my mind. I'm going crazy. And then a fear of dying. That you really think you might die, particularly when it first happens to you and you don't know what's going on. There is a real strong feeling of impending death. That's really sort of what keeps this thing going is those really big cognitive experiences or feelings of panic where, oh my God, what's wrong with me? I'm going to die. I'm losing my mind. I'm going crazy. What if I never get back to normal again? Those are really important parts of panic. And then also, you know, there's numbness and tingling, which we've talked about before. Right? All of A lot of these physical symptoms are the symptoms we talk about with anxiety because remember, the fight or flight system is doing these things physiologically to help you run away from the grizzly bear. And then some people, you know, you get changes in temperature. So as I said, you might get chills or you might your temperature, you might get hot. So when you look at this, you might say, gosh, that does sound like anxiety. Yeah, because panic and panic disorder are anxiety disorders. They're connected to that. But I think what this school counselor is talking about is when kids are feeling anxious, when they're feeling anxious before a test, when they're feeling like if you have social anxiety and you're feeling like, oh my gosh, I have to step into this situation, or for kids that are real worriers and they're spending a lot of time worrying about, oh my gosh, what if I get a bad grade on a test? It doesn't really raise to the level of panic until you get to the place where you feel really really out of control. And so sometimes at schools, school counselors will see kids having a panic attack. And it will be scary for everybody because this kid, they'll say, oh my God, they're in a state of panic. But when somebody is in in panic mode, they're not thinking rationally. Sometimes it feels like they're really disconnected from reality, that they're really sort of, you know, I'm making air quotes, but they're really losing it versus anxiety where I'm worrying about this, I'm afraid of this, I'm having difficult time with this. So it really is a level of severity. This is not a hard and fast rule, but think of this as sort of a general guide. If a student arrives in your office and says, oh my gosh, Mrs. Lyons, I'm totally having a panic attack. Let me tell you what just happened. That's probably not a panic attack because they're thinking, they're talking, they're giving you information. The other thing about panic attacks is they're sort of differentiated between they come out of nowhere, 
like you're just sort of sitting there and all of a sudden you have this surge of symptoms that lasts anywhere from like 10 to 20 minutes, sometimes a little bit longer. And then, but also there are panic attacks because again, we're describing symptomology that can happen when you're absolutely stepping into something that you know freaks you out. Say you're terrified of going over a bridge and you're approaching the bridge and all of a sudden your body just freaks out. We can use me as an example, terrified of medical stuff, which, you know, as we said, I'm so much better than I used to be, but I would ultimately pass out. My body would go into a full-fledged panic. I learned that I wasn't going to die, but when I was younger, and I can't remember when it first started happening what I thought about that, but my body was completely hijacked to the point where I would pass out. So it can be caused by different things. It can be a reaction to certain things, but also it can just come out of nowhere. And again, panic disorder is when then you start really, really avoiding doing lots of things. And it ultimately can become what we refer to as agoraphobia, where people don't even leave their house because they're afraid of having a panic attack. This sounds really tricky on a couple of different levels because the very nature of the panic attack is that it could very well happen out of the blue mm -hmm. and it isn't tied to something in a more rational sequence like a moment of anxiety. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it doesn't even identify for the sufferer what the trigger was to avoid. Correct. That's when people oftentimes develop agoraphobia because they're trying to identify a trigger. And so they start putting more and more things into their trigger basket. And then ultimately it just becomes, I'm terrified of leaving the house because what if I have a panic attack? Now, knowing that if we're treating that, oftentimes it isn't that it just came out of the blue. Usually when people are experiencing panic, like when you have your first panic attack, usually there's something stressful going on. It usually is something that sort of has been building under the surface for a while and then the symptoms hit. It just feels like it's completely out of the blue and they can't identify exactly what happened because it's not like, oh, I was going over a bridge or I was getting on a plane or I had to give a speech. But generally we can look and there's a style of dealing with things that may be predictive of somebody having a panic attack. Well, the other thing that I hear what you're saying and what I think is so complicated about this is we just have to talk about the obvious facts of teenage behavior, too, mm -hmm. because I was certainly this way. When I was a teenager, if I had two choices of how to describe how I was feeling and one was a dramatic expression and one was a non-dramatic expression, I always chose the dramatic expression <laughs> yeah. because I think every teenager right. does. What is it that you said your husband used to say, like he didn't have a canker sore? Oh, yeah. The little bump on his tongue. It was a herniated taste bud. Right. And I remember my mom telling me when I was a teenager, like, you never have a headache. You always think you're developing a brain tumor. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. But, and, and that was honestly because I loved just kind of freaking her out when I was, you know, like 14 or 15. Right. So you have the tendency already to want to express yourself in a dramatic way. So there's always a lot of that, I'm sure, going on. Yeah. And that's such a good point is because what we want to do is, and I think what's great about what this question is, she says, I always validate their experience. We don't want to say if somebody says, I'm having a panic attack, we don't want to say, 
Well, you're actually not clinically having a panic attack because you're able to speak in cogent sentences and you don't have an impending fear of death, right? We don't want to say that. But you may have a conversation, probably not in the moment, that talks about, again, emotional management and what does that catastrophic interpretation of both a situation and what's going on with you emotionally and physically, how does that impact you? So we want kids to be able to express what's going on inside of them and to be able to use that language to let people know that they're struggling or they need help. But it does help, I think, to say to kids, like, let's try and accurately use the language of what you're experiencing emotionally. If you're heartbroken, if somebody breaks up with you when you're 16 and you are just feeling that horrible rejection that it feels like when somebody breaks your heart, We don't want them to then start saying, oh, I'm having an episode of depression. Or as many teenagers say to me, my depression showed up when such and such happened. Or, you know what, I always have a panic attack when I see such and such walking down the hall. We just want to help them be more accurate in their language, not dismiss the way they're feeling, but be more accurate in it for sure. And it's really okay to say, oh my God, I was so completely freaked out, or I was so anxious about this, or I really am having such a hard time figuring out what to do. I'm kind of freaking out right now and I need some help versus taking on that language of saying, I'm having a panic attack. And people use that language a lot in my office to describe what's going on with their kids. I gently educate them and say, let's not use that catastrophic language. Let's not use that diagnostic language to describe a kid who's having a really hard time because you just told them that they need to get off their Xbox or they're having a really hard time because they're really afraid of going to the birthday party. Now, if you have a kid who's having difficulty getting into school, for example, a real school refusal kid, and they are in the car and they're screaming, and maybe they throw up, you know, you're like, oh my God, where did my kid go? Then we would say, right, they're having a panic attack. So it's just a matter of degree, because I am so conscious of making sure that we are talking to kids about what to do with their emotions, and I want to move them into problem solving. I just want to make sure that they're not using this language that sounds so severe and so pathological, as this counselor has said, that they start taking it on as their identity right? Like, oh my God, I have panic attacks. When really it may be like, oh my God, I don't know how to handle my stress. Or, oh my God, I'm totally, I'm totally nervous, you know, or I have a broken heart or, or, or. We don't want to get in the way of them talking about their feelings. But, you know, as I've talked about before, sort of elevating it to a place of such pathology and then this identity thing that happens, we just want to make sure. So it's really fine to say, I was so anxious about this or I'm just having these symptoms of anxiety without immediately jumping to, oh, I was having a panic attack. Because it is about severity. You know, when you're listening to a song on the radio and you just have this feeling that the song was written about you or that it was someone that you love trying to say something to you, well, now imagine the power to gift that same incredible feeling to someone you love with an original song that actually is about them and about your relationship, and that Songfinch writes just for you. Songfinch lets you create an original radio quality song inspired by your own life and the people that you love. It's completely unique, it's personal, and it lasts forever. 
I had the pleasure of creating a family song with Songfinch about our summer celebrations that we have every year. I knew it was going to make everybody cry, and it certainly did. I got to be honest, I was even crying, giving all of the information and helping personalize my song with the writer that I chose. He absolutely delivered a beautiful acoustic song that captured exactly what I was looking for, and it was so fun to share with the family. So whether you're song is for Father's Day, an upcoming graduation, a wedding or an anniversary, or even just a gift to show your loved one how much you care. Start your song now to lock in one of Songfinch's top artists. Don't waste another dollar on more stuff. It only takes four to seven days, but that song will last forever. For a limited time, Songfinch is letting our listeners upload their song to Spotify for free so you and the lucky person or people can listen to it anywhere, anytime. So go to songfinch.com fluster and start your song. After you purchase, you'll be prompted to add Spotify streaming for your original song for free, a $50 value. Again, the URL is songfinch.com Fluster. Don't forget to share your song with us too in our Facebook group, songfinch.com slash fluster. I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me. And if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free option. That is really great. So I think that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners, eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness. It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier, sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. When you say that, it makes me think of last week's episode talking about how critical it is for a parent when they're talking with their teens and kids of using accurate information when describing depression or anxiety, Mm -hmm. not using language that gets into permanent identities, etc. That's Mm -hmm. a common theme here because it really shows that how a parent and a family is talking about mental health with accurate labels Mm -hmm. versus like dramatic global language, Mm -hmm. you're creating an uphill battle when you go global, when you make things permanent. Maybe someone did have one panic attack, but to then jump and say, I have panic attacks. Right. 
that doesn't mean that you will have another one per se. You had one. It's a check-in for both parents to think about how they're talking about this. Do they feel equipped to speak accurately about this? And then how do they keep reminding their children and their teenagers especially how to speak accurately about it too? The tricky thing about it is that when we speak accurately about it, then oftentimes the way that that is perceived by kids is that we are dismissing them. So that becomes the battle, right? If somebody says like, oh my gosh, I'm totally having a panic attack. And this school counselor were to say like, you're not really having a panic attack. Then the kid would be like, yes, I am. Instead, it's like, you sound really, really worried. Let's talk about that. Right. Or you know what? You often show up here when you're really stressed out, let's look at that pattern of how you get stressed out. It was interesting. I was watching a a video that I've watched before of one of the people that I consider one of my teachers. And he was talking about anxiety and he was talking about how do they do anxiety? Talk to them how they do anxiety. That language says to whoever you're talking to that there are things that you do. This is not dismissing, but it's really saying if there are things that you do in terms of anxiety, then there are ways that we can get you out of this pattern versus saying, oh, this panic overtook me. That's why panic attacks and talking about panic is such a tricky thing because that language is just sort of like, oh my gosh, it overtook me and I wasn't able to problem solve and I completely lost control. When we look at people who are dealing with panic disorder and are struggling with this, one of the real key things is a fear of losing control because the possibility of the panic itself becomes the biggest issue. Let's talk about problem solving or let's talk about your perfectionism or let's talk about how panicky you get or you know how anxious you get or pan- whatever you, word you want to use when you're dealing with these social relationships. You know, you and I have talked about having awkward conversations. Say you've got to have an awkward conversation. And if you can say, oh my gosh, this just makes me feel so anxious. You know, I know before I have this conversation that my, I'm just, my hands are going to be shaking or I'm going to feel like I, you know, I'm going to feel like I have to pee or whatever is so different than saying, I can't have that conversation because I will totally panic. Because that immediately takes you out of the situation rather than saying, I can feel this way and I can do what I need to do. Because panic is like, you're out, you're gone, right? Your prefrontal cortex, whoop, gone. So we don't want to use that language because we want to say to kids, you can feel all these feelings and still be able to manage what's going on, right? Or you still can learn how to step into a situation that feels this way and be able to move forward. Panic, and the reason agoraphobia happens with panic is panic is like, no, we're out. We are, we are absolutely not doing this because we might die. So you really want to pay attention to that. It's just about educating kids and, and educating ourselves about how we talk to them about the variety of human emotional experience without having to go to that really big, powerful place that shuts kids down. My family and I just watched this show and it had a perfect example of a a teenage daughter ended up getting invited to go out with the new crowd of friends Mm -hmm. on Halloween. Mm -hmm. But she and her mom had had a ritual of handing out candy and getting dressed up together. But she was finally like too old for that. Mm -hmm. She didn't want to do that anymore. And so she just took off and kind of, it was sad as a mom now, like she left her mom stranded Mm -hmm. there and she goes off with her friends. And then when she comes back, the mom's like, if you didn't want to give out candy with me, why didn't you just tell me? And the teenager was classically, I didn't want to hurt your feelings. Mm -hmm. So I just didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. I avoided Mm -hmm. it. So that teenager avoided the conversation because she knew it would be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. 
she didn't avoid that conversation because she thought she might die or lose control. (laughs) Right. right. Or that she was having a panic attack, so she needed to run away from her mom. Yeah, it really is about talking about things accurately. And I think that's what this school adjustment counselor is reacting to, is that how do I help my students speak accurately about what they're experiencing? Because that leads us to be able to talk about solutions. It also helps them understand that they're not alone in this and that things can be done. When somebody says to me, well, I'm failing all my classes because my depression makes it really hard for me to do my work. Okay, I'm failing all my classes because my panic makes it hard for me to take a test. It's sort of saying this part of me takes over and there's nothing I can do. And so that's what we really, really want to be able to talk to kids about. And it's so important too that parents pay attention to their language You're joking of saying, you know, your mom said you have a headache, not a brain tumor. But there are a lot of parents that also use this language of like, oh, my God, what's wrong? This is an emergency. I need to get my child into the doctor because there's an emergency. Or I am so panicked about their grades. Or when they leave home for college, I know I'm going to be completely devastated. Or whenever I think about being an empty nester, I get completely depressed. We teach our kids this language that then makes them afraid of their emotions. It's conveying to them that they are going to be overwhelmed when things happen. And remember, overwhelmed, that's where we shut down when we're overwhelmed, both physiologically and emotionally and cognitively, right? When you're in a state of overwhelm, you don't do anything. I think it's a really helpful exercise to think about panic attacks that you know of within your family Mm -hmm. and to ask yourself, were those panic attacks? Mm -hmm. Are you describing things that aren't panic attacks as Mm -hmm. panic attacks? Mm -hmm. If you had a panic attack yourself, was it really a panic Mm -hmm. attack when you hear it through the language that you describe the severity of the symptoms? Mm -hmm. It's an important thing to say because if you're a parent listening and you're like, oh, well, maybe that isn't a panic attack Mm -hmm. and we kind of call them panic Mm -hmm. attacks. That in fact is like a symptom of more using language to make this harder. Let me give you an example of where we might say where you're panicky versus having a panic attack. Because remember, panic attack, you are not able to think you feel like you're going crazy. You feel like you might be dying. When I took my sons to Universal by myself, and we've talked about this, this was the time where the Harry Potter ride was broken, remember? Well, what also happened on that trip is that I lost them in Universal for an hour. And oh my God, this, <laughs> how did how did this story never come out? <laughs> you never heard this story? I, I don't know if you shared this story. I feel like I would know this story. You know this story because the funny part of this story is, well, so I lost them. So I just turned around. It was really hot. It was like 105 degrees. And I turned around and they were gone. And we had set up a place to meet as my dad always taught us. But then we had changed the place to meet. But then I went to the old place and they went to the correct place. So they were at the Hulk roller coaster and I was at like the nut and candy booth. But anyway, <laughs> so I went to customer service or I found a security guard and I said, I've lost my two boys. And he said, oh my gosh, okay, so what's their cell phone number? And then I had to say like, we don't carry cell phones. And he was probably like 23. That didn't compute for a while. You know, I went through the whole thing. You go, they say, go to customer service. I gave a description. And then the guy was with me. At this point, how old was I? I was probably like 42. And he was this like very nice young man. 
probably like 22 or 23. And he said, so just go ahead and look around and go back to the customer service desk and everybody will be looking for them. And I said, okay, thank you. That I like, you know, I was by myself and I could like, was probably getting a little teary. And then he said to me, do you want me to just stay with you while we walk around a little bit? And I said, yes. I mean, like, I'm not scared that I'm never going to find my kids. It's just that I'm here by myself and I don't have anybody else to help me look. And he said to me, which was crushing and totally took over the fact that I couldn't find my kids. He said to me, because I thought like he was so cute and I I didn't realize I was the mom. And he said to me, it's okay, ma'am. I have a mother too. And I was like, Do know this story. So it's that story, right? Like you were mammed and mommed in one very vulnerable moment. That's horrible. As I tell this story, so I was really, I was really looking for my boys. I couldn't find them. I was running to the customer service, checking in. Then I was running back to where I said we would meet. You know, you can imagine I was just scanning the crowd for my two little guys, looking, 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 looking. But I wasn't having a panic attack because I didn't feel like I was going to die. I wasn't disconnected from my body. I didn't feel a sense of impending doom. So you might say I was anxious for sure. My body was hyped up. I clearly had a good dose of adrenaline that was allowing me to run back and forth, right? I was feeling very heightened, but I wasn't panicking. I wasn't having a panic attack. So if I said, if I was telling you this story and I was like, oh, Robin, oh my gosh, I lost the boys at Universal. I had a total panic attack. Okay, so we may be, I'm just saying, like, I wasn't having a panic attack. Right, because you wouldn't have been problem solving in a panic attack state. Right, I was thinking. And and also, had I been having a panic attack, I wouldn't have been offended that I was mommed and manned by the cute security guard, right? So So I was still present. Lynn, who was trying to look like the hot mom, was still present in that moment, right? And if you'd really had a panic attack, you would have kind of probably been a little paralyzed and not asked for help. You'd just be sitting there at that uh, broomstick restaurant, you know, just not even like just checking out sobbing. Exactly. Thinking that you were going to die. And because I have a history of passing out when people talk about broken bones, I know what that feels like. Now I know now that I'm not going to die, but man, I am trying to get out of there. I am not thinking clearly. And I'm, you know, at the, at the very same time, my blood pressure is plummeting and all the blood is leaving my brain. And I'm about to lose consciousness. That's much closer to a panic attack than, you know, the, all the symptoms that happen. So it's just being able to teach your kids how to use language to describe what's happening. Could we accurately say I was panicky that I couldn't find them? Yeah. Was I having a panic attack? No. I was thinking. I was problem solving. I was responding. And ultimately... I found them, of course. And they actually were doing the very same thing, which is kind of great. A great part of the story, too, is that I said, what did you guys do? I want to know what what you guys did. And they said, well, we first we went to the Hulk roller coaster and you weren't there. So we thought, well, mom is forgetting to come here. So we thought about what we should do. Right. <laughs> yeah. And they said this to me. Well, we know this must happen. Of course, kids lose their parents at amusement parks. So we went up to the front And we asked a person where you check in, what do you do when you lose your mom and dad? Because they said, we know that this must happen. So they must have a way to solve it. And then they brought them to the customer service thing and they checked in. So I was so proud because the two of them together 
went through the steps that they needed to do in order to find me. And I said to them, you know, I'm so proud of you guys being able to think this through because it must have been kind of scary for you. Honestly, I think it was more scary for me than it was for them. Yeah. Like, all right. All right. Where's mom? You know, God, we're missing. Well, it's not like she left the park. Right. You know, they know that. Right. And, you know, you think maybe if you're a worrier, that's a good point. Because what does worry do? Worry goes to the worst case scenario. So if they were worriers, they would have thought, oh my gosh, did mom abandon us? Did mom leave us? Did mom die somewhere, right? They were pretty much like mom forgot to come to the Hulk roller coaster. That's sort of the difference in the way the worried mind takes over. What's the narrative that it tells you? And what throws your body into panic is this very strong reaction of, oh no, a terrible thing is happening. Just like if you have a headache and you think it's a brain tumor, And you go in to see your doctor and you're totally panicked because you think you're about to die and you don't have a brain tumor. So there's so much that goes on inside of us. And so being able to, you know, sort of getting back to the main point here, being able to to teach kids to be able to talk as accurately as possible and use that language because the language drives the narrative. Your language drives your self-perception and the perception of what's going on around you. But here's the challenge. If you're in an authentic panic attack, yes. how do you use that language that you knew before the attack to help you in the moment? How do you use that perception of what a panic attack actually is? So great, you know what a panic attack actually is, but how does the rational mind support you in the middle of one explaining what's going on? It can't. Not very Can well. It? No. When a true panic attack is happening, once you know what it is and once somebody tells you what it is and once you believe them, right? Because that's the key. So when I have one of these episodes, one of these vasovagal fainting episodes, I know exactly what's going on. But that had to come with me learning from that and having some experience. So we want to educate somebody who's experiencing this. We want to educate them about what's going on. The key thing is for them to recognize they're not going to die and give them that physiological information about what their body is doing. The same thing we do whenever anybody feels anxious. It's so helpful to know what's happening. And then you just have to ride it out because there's not a lot to do. There's not a lot of rational thinking. There's not a lot of problem solving. When you're truly having a panic attack, there's just not a lot of problem solving. When this has happened to me and I'm on the floor, wherever I happen to be, and it's been in all sorts of places, People start to freak out around me because they don't know what happened. They, they don't know if I had a seizure or whatever. One of the very first things that comes out of my mouth is, I know exactly what's going on and I am fine. I say that to the people around me. That came with years of experience. But it didn't take me that long, actually, to be able to say that because I know I've said that in many, many situations. I've only passed out twice in the last 22 years, and I've only really had significant issues. In the last 22 years, I've probably had some close calls, maybe three more times than that. Teachers ask me all the time in schools and parents, they will say, what do we do when the kid is having a panic attack? And the answer is always not much. And again, it's the information ahead of time that really helps so that if your child tends to get overwhelmed and tends to panic like this, that then you have an agreed upon script, for lack of a better word, to say, we know what's happening. This is what happens when your amygdala totally takes over and we're just going to ride this out and I'm sitting here next to you. And you can do simple things like, you know, focusing on breathing so that your nervous system calms down a little bit, but there's not much to be done and they really don't last long. That's the other thing too. Your body doesn't stay in this state for long. It feels like forever, but it really doesn't last very long. 
You know, sometimes people wait until something bad happens to talk to a therapist, but why wait? Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, and feel grounded in your personal relationships. So getting started is the important part. Talkspace makes it easy and affordable. With Talkspace, you can sign up online and get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist from the comfort of your home, your car, your office. There's no need to commute to appointments and miss time at work or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. That's right. And it's secure and private. They use the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information, complying with the latest HIPAA regulations. Remember, Talkspace is affordable and it's in-network with most major insurers. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster. To match with your licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster to get $80 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash Fluster. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. I remember having a conversation with you about someone who was probably in a panic attack and you had given the advice, try and encourage them to tap into a different part of their brain that had connections with memory and music. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell me more about that. It may or may not work, but if somebody is aware that they're having a panic attack, so if you know that they can say, I'm having a panic attack, that gives you the opportunity to say, let's see if we can shift from this very internally focused state. Because remember, the thing that keeps this so powerful is panicking about the panic attack. So say somebody's having the panic attack and they can say, I'm having a panic attack. So then we might say, okay, so let's try and activate a different part of you. So it might be music. Lots of times people will talk about grounding things. So look around the room. What are five things that you see? What are five things that you can touch? I don't use those strategies when people are having anxiety because I don't really feel, because then we've got a whole nother thing. I want them to move into it. But if they're truly in panic, then we're trying to just get them out of that internally focused, oh my God, I'm going to die state and reconnect them to the external world and reconnect them to other parts of themselves so they don't go down into that spiral, into that canyon of panic. So say you're working with a child or say your child or teenager tends to get like this, have a plan. If they can say, I know I'm having a panic attack right now, then you say, okay, so here's what we're going to do. We know it's harmless because it truly is harmless physiologically. We know this is harmless. And how can we activate other parts of you so that you don't spiral into that? I'm panicking about the panic. 
because you lose them. I mean, that's what it sort of feels like, like they're gone. And they are. They're inside panicking about the panic. How do we connect you to something outside of yourself? If they're able to say, this is a panic attack. If they're not able to say that, then you've got to just sort of ride through it with them. And then you do the teaching afterwards. So we got another listener question about panic attacks. I want to read you Mm -hmm. and see if you want to add any extra notes to this. Okay. My son is 11 years old, and it's been a year now that he has every now and then had panic attacks. For him, the panics are associated to my death. He starts to imagine that I die and what would be the consequence. He would need to die too because he cannot imagine living without me. He goes over all he would lose. His sorrow is so deep I cannot reason with him and he completely collapses. Note that I'm in very good shape and that there are no apparent reasons for him to be concerned. My question is, how should parents respond to a panic attack? Just be there with our child, listen and share their pain? Okay, so this is such a good question because here we have an example of a child who worries and who gets absorbed in this story. So he's, you said, 11 years old. It's just sort of dawning on him that his mom could die. He's really thinking about death, and it's not unusual for kids at this age to sort of think about death. They're actually pretty intrigued by the whole idea. There's a lot of stuff in young adult literature that has to do with death, the Hunger Games, right? So they're intrigued by this. But what we're seeing is this is how his worry takes over. And what's interesting about this is that she says his sorrow is so deep that she can't reason with him. He's not having a panic attack. He's getting involved in this big existential worry about the fact that people that he loved will die. So it's not really a panic attack. So a few things. One is that in the middle of this, this is a great example of why we can't argue content. This is a process question. So I wouldn't be talking to this boy about, look, I'm so healthy and I'm not going to die and there's no reason for you to worry about me dying. Well, everybody dies and even if you're healthy, you die. So there's no reason to get into that kind of yeah, but argument. What she wants to talk with him about is what a great imagination he has and how he gets sucked into this story, and how can she help him, and how can he begin to help himself recognize that he doesn't have to watch this movie. Because we can see the way she describes it. It's probably a process over, I don't know if she says, several minutes at least. He just keeps going and going and going until he just collapses with sorrow. That's not really panic. It's worry, and it's him watching this movie. So he needs to learn the skill of how do I say to myself and how do you, how does mom say to him, we don't need to let worry now show us this movie again. Why would you want to watch this movie? And is it a reality that people you love die? Yep. Is that hard to deal with? Yep. But worry wants to marinate you in it. Worry wants you to watch this movie. It's the same thing. I say this to kids all the time. We see those ads on TV that Sarah McLaughlin does with all the pictures of the horribly abused animals. I dive for the remote when I see that, right? I know it's happening. I know what those ads are going to show, but I don't need to marinate myself in something because I'm not going to problem solve that. I'll adopt kittens. We used to foster care kittens, but I am not going to marinate myself in the horrible images of those ads. And that's what he's doing. So the question becomes, how do you talk to him about how his worry is so powerful and how he gets so absorbed in it? And again, it's not about distraction. It's not about saying, oh, don't think that or don't feel that. But look, this is a normal part of life. So those thoughts are going to pop up. 
And the difference between having the thought pop up and then getting so deep in your despair that you completely fall apart, that's the pattern that I would want to pay attention to with him. In the moment, how does she respond to him? You could listen. And she says, do we just sit there and share their pain? No, (laughs) no, don't say, I know it's so horrible. I might die. God, if I die, that would be terrible. Let's just imagine that. Let's just imagine how awful it would be if you were here without me and everything that you would lose. No, you want to say, your worry is really getting you absorbed right now. And there's two parts of us. There's a part of us that can get really sucked into all of this. But there's also a part of us that can say, you know, it's hard to deal with this huge concept of death and it's going to show up. And how are we going to respond to it when it shows up? This is just like we've always talked about. This is about changing that response. Because... As you know, this mom is going to have this 11-year-old become a 12 or Mm 13-year-old, and the content that fuels these episodes will change to something else. Right. Absolutely. And again, so then he starts becoming articulate and understands how to manage this, how to externalize his worry, and say, worry, I'm not going to let you do that anymore. It's only natural that the worry thoughts still come back later about other things. Right. But ideally, he feels equipped to respond as the worry starts taking hold of him. Right. And even, you know, I mean, death is a big thing. Human beings worry about it all the time. Think of all the things that we do as human beings to try and understand it. To, you know, I mean, it's a big deal. And what we want to talk to anybody who worries about some big, huge thing that actually happens is that worry in and of itself, it's not problem solving. It doesn't give you skills to manage when life happens. So it's very, very expected that thoughts about death are going to pop up. Why? Because human beings, we all know we're all going to die and that kind of freaks us out. So it's okay to have those thoughts. It's really what you do when the thoughts show up and how you get sucked into them and how you say to yourself, of course, I'm going to have thoughts about that. Of course, you know, we've had thoughts about that. When you, all of us who have kids, when we hear about somebody's child dying, where do we go? Right? That's our empathy. We, we get pulled into that. It's the question of whether or not you let that worry dictate what you're going to think, how you're going to respond, what your life is going to be like. Because worry disguises itself as reality. And being able to say, of course, I'm going to have those thoughts. Of course, now that you you think about that, that's a very mature thought to have. How, right? Here's the how question. And, and like my, my, my teacher Jeff said, how are you doing worry? How are you doing worry? Different than a panic attack, as we've said, because he's, he's clearly thinking and talking and he's, he's feeling very powerful things, but he's imagining, he's telling a story, not so much panic. And really, this is where helping kids learn how to talk about the normal occurrence of scary thoughts and strong emotions about big things like death and whatever else they discover is really, really helpful. But you don't want to get into it with him. You don't want to say, oh, I know that feels so terrible. Oh, that's so awful. Oh, it's true. If I die, that would be awful. You don't want to share his pain. You want to say, here comes worry doing what worry always does. And of course it does it about death. Of course it does. But this is what we want to help kids understand as a normal human process. Tell worry you're not interested in the movie worry wants to show you. Yeah, right. I I don't need to watch that movie. As a mother, as a daughter, as a wife, There are so many movies that I do not need to watch. (laughs) 
I don't know why I did this, but I I think I finished, I have a few more left in it, but I've showed my daughter off and on, like I showed her beaches and she was like, you told me this was a comedy. <laughs> and then I, I showed her Steel Magnolias and I don't know, like it, it, there there is something weird. I'm like, I want to show her all the tearjerkers. Yes. This is such a funny story about a group of women in the South. Let's watch. <laughs> Only one of them dies. <laughs> I, know. I know. So then whenever, and then like the second Julia Roberts says like she's ill, my yeah. daughter looks over at me and she's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> she was so <laughs> mad at me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. She knew right where this was yeah. headed. Yeah. Hang in there because she dies, but there's a, there's a hilarious cemetery scene coming up. <laughs> What's another good tearjerker one that I should show her in terms of endearment? Oh, yeah. Oh, you haven't showed her that yet? Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. The scene where Deborah Winger's in her hospital bed saying saying goodbye to her two boys. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a laugh a minute. <laughs> yeah. And then she says, I think it went well, don't you? Oh, my God. And also, I think about those movies, watching those. And if I watch them now, like I watched a lot of those movies. I wasn't a mom yet. So I think that's the only reason I was even capable of watching them. Movies were a big deal to us in our generation because we didn't have streaming services and we might have had like a videotape, you know, bring up the Betamax two weeks in a row. Yeah. So like to share, like, this is an old friend. Right. I want you to see like Tootsie loved that movie growing up. Yeah. And we went to the movies. So I think it was an event. Like I can think of my first date with Stephen Gallo going to Urban Cowboy, right? We went to the movies. It was, it was an event. And so I think now like movies are just a different thing than they were for us growing up, you know, going to Jaws. Oh my God. Right. Going to see Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Even thinking when I took my boys to see the Harry Potter movies in the theater. Right. And I think now maybe some of that is lost. Movies can be so emotional, but I do think going to the theater and that whole experience really sort of has much more of a emotional mark on us, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think also the impact of HBO and what HBO led with high quality television mm-hmm. programming, yeah. right? Opening this wave of brilliant shows yeah. and not movies. Yeah. So sometimes it's the shows now that are these really deeply connected pieces of entertainment right. that would have been the movies before. Right. Because TV, it was like you went and saw Terms of Endearment and what was on TV, like Three's Company, you know? And Knott's Landing. Yeah, right. And so I think our, our real emotional experiences happened in movie theaters, a lot of them. That's right. And yeah. then now those writers are happy to write TV shows now. See, we're so smart. We just figured out this whole like sociocultural trend. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> oh, people are like, okay, you too. <laughs> just stop. <laughs> just stop. <laughs> So join the Facebook group so that you can ask Lynn your question on an upcoming episode. And thanks for joining us for another episode of Flusterclux. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're aiming more of a, we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, Mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? 
And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.